Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We'll start today talking about General Motors' white-collar buyout. And the UAW presidential election with Jamie Butters, who's executive editor of Automotive News. Then we're going to turn our attention back to the debate over District Detroit, this huge downtown development proposed by the Illich family and developer Stephen Ross. Annalise Frank of Axios Detroit will join to talk about some really tough questions being asked this week by Detroit City Council. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Michigan School of Psychology and the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and I'm really glad you've joined us today. It's no secret that as Detroiters, we care an awful lot about what happens in the auto industry. What happens to GM and Ford and Stellantis really has an impact on almost all of us. It impacts, of course, people working on those kind of cars, building them, designing them, but also people in related fields like auto repair and tire shops and even in seemingly unrelated professions, barbers, school teachers, bartenders, whatever you do here, it is at least tangentially related to the auto industry. So it's not a surprise either that people took notice when General Motors decided to offer buyouts to its white collar workers in an attempt to cut $2 billion in costs. And this all comes alongside more news in the automotive world, the fact that the United Auto Workers voted in six reform candidates to the UAW Executive Board. A little later in the program, we're going to talk about Detroit politics, specifically as it relates to the recent public meeting at City Council held about the District Detroit and what the future of that project looks like this week. But before we get there, we wanted to stop for a bit and talk about GM and what these salaried buyouts mean. Why did GM do this? What does this say about the amount of jobs needed as car companies transition to an electric future? And what is changing leadership within the UAW mean for the automotive industry? To talk about all this, we've got Jamie Butters with us. He is the executive editor of the Automotive News and co-host of the Automotive News Daily Drive podcast. He recently wrote also about this uh, buyout. Jamie, welcome back to Detroit Today. Oh, hi, Stephen. Good to be yep, here. Sorry about there that. There you are. A technical <laughs> problem on my end. No worries. So uh, let's start with the buyouts. Uh, what do these look like practically? $2 billion in costs is what GM says it needs to save. Uh, what, what's, what's going on here? Is this about the soft economy or is this about long-term change? You know, GM uh, has added a lot of salaried employees since the last time it did buyouts. <laughs> and so... Uh, you know, maybe I think there there's some 
legitimate argument that uh, GM has made, you know, that they maybe they have too many people, maybe too many people in some of the wrong areas, uh, maybe too many people still working on engineering for internal combustion engine vehicles, uh, which, of course, are kind of slowly being phased out in favor of electric vehicles. GM aims to get to about 50% of each. And you think about the long term or the medium term, right, GM's going to do trucks, with, uh, you know, gas-burning engines and, you know, smaller cars, probably mostly with, uh, with batteries. And, and so there are going to be people that, that, they, that they don't need as many of, and maybe it's harder to retrain them. The fact that they are buyout offers, you know, they're not cutting heads across the board or anything mm-hmm. like that. You know, it, it definitely softens it. It gives the sense, you know, it's letting people... If, they're, if they have another offer that they were thinking about, if they were thinking about retiring early, uh, you know, maybe they want to take this. It's, you know, it's, it's not the most generous uh, package that automakers have ever offered to salaried workers. But, you know, if you've been, you get a month of salary for every year, you've been on the job up to one year. So you can get, you can get one year of pay, you know, to buy yourself some time to figure out what you want to do. And, um, you know, it's not, a, it's not a bad offer if you were thinking about leaving, but it does send a bit of a chill especially when it's followed by, you know, some warnings that if not enough people take it, then they mm-hmm. may need to take other steps to get more people out the door. Yeah. So um, I'll put this into a little bit more of the, the wider context here at GM. Uh, you say this is a smart move for, for CEO Mary Barra. Uh, what is this? How does this connect to... Uh, the, the the challenges, I guess, that that, that GM is facing big to, in, in in big picture terms. Well, right. I mean, even since I mean, G, you know, GM is such a big player in the economy, right? They feel it when when the tide rises and when the tide <laughs> falls, and there's a lot of concern about uh, about the economy. I mean, not huge concern. Obviously, it's it's really humming along strongly. But as the Fed tries to rein in interest rates, you know, will there be a recession? Will they overshoot? Now we've got you know concerns about banks that we didn't have even when these plans were announced. Uh, so, you know, there is recession risk. There is the huge cost to convert to electric vehicles that GM and everyone else is facing. So they've got to, you know, they've got every billion dollars counts. <laughs> so <laughs> saving a couple billion dollars or a couple billion dollars a year for the rest of the decade, you know, will be important to GM making that transition to the electric future. But, uh, yeah, so that's that's I think part of it, and and like it's, and like we were saying in in the broader economy, it is still a pretty good job market. So maybe people uh, will will be glad to have this opportunity to go try something new. Uh, but for GM, you know, they're they're looking into a little bit of a scary economy. We're going to see, you know, profits have been through the roof uh, with the scarcity that the industry mm-hmm. has had during the COVID times, and GM in particular is trying to maintain discipline on inventory, not overproduce. They, they idled a pickup truck plant, you know, to try to not get too much out there that would cause them to go back into all the bad old habits of selling vehicles with huge discounts and not making enough money on them. But we know there's going to be some reversion to the mean. There is going to be more production. Prices are going to be less, you know, uh, uh, sky high than they have been lately. For a while, half of all new vehicle purchases were for above MSRP. And 
uh, that's just unthinkable historically. <laughs> but we've been in this historic period where you know, yeah. so they're just, the automakers and the dealers have been making really outsized profits, and that's not going to last. And it is smart to think ahead, not assume that you're going to keep making you know a billion plus dollars every month in operating profit. Yeah, but yeah. GM has been really profitable for the last few years, as has most of the industry. I'm talking with Jamie Butters. He's executive editor of Automotive News, co-host also of the Automotive News Daily Drive podcast. Right now, we're talking about GM's offer to white-collar workers uh, to take buyouts in uh, search of about $2 billion in cost-cutting inside the company. Uh, in a little bit, we're going to talk about what's going on with the UAW, its executive board, uh, and uh, a presidential election. Uh, we want to hear from you as well during the conversation. Give us a sense of what you think about GM's buyouts. You think this is a good thing or a bad sign of things to come for GM and for the broader auto industry, which, of course, has a lot to do with uh, our our lot in life here in uh, Metro Detroit. Uh, what do you make of the future of the auto industry? What excites you about it? What concerns you about it? 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll work you into the conversation, especially want to hear from folks who've been offered this buyout at GM. Are you taking it? Are you thinking about it? Uh, let us know uh, what, what, uh, what, you're, what you're thinking about there. Uh, Jamie, before we get to listeners, I want to talk about something that's kind of related to this. Um, the price of a new car right now mm-hmm. is just beyond what I could ever imagine paying for a vehicle, <laughs> um, you know, and that's for just, uh, you know, a regular sedan, uh, not, not a luxury SUV. Um, but, but we're starting to see uh, cars with, um, with six-figure price tags on them. Uh, and, and again, not like some crazy car. This is just a car. So, so I, I, I'm, not, I'm not in a position to spend that kind of money on a car. I just I, I would never be able to wrap my mind around it. And I imagine I'm not alone. So I guess my question to you is, is, is the industry concerned about the rising cost of, of cars and what I think inevitably will be some sort of drop-off in, in, in sales if this continues? I don't know that people seem ready to pay, you know, an average of 50 or more thousand dollars for a new mm-hmm. car. Yeah, it is a concern um, for different stakeholders in the industry in different ways. I think, you know, to a certain extent, the auto industry, the manufacturers, unless they have a, uh, a few of them might still have really good scale that they can, can pump out large numbers of vehicles and make money on all of them. But most of, a lot of automakers would rather you know make fewer vehicles, make higher end vehicles, sell fewer of them, and make more money per car. Uh, and maybe that works best for the automaker. That is not necessarily a great uh, strategy that trickles down to the suppliers. And, you know, if we say we're going to accept that the U.S. market is going to be 15 million vehicles a year instead of 17 mm-hmm. pushing 18 like it was before covid um you know that's going to be 10 percent less work for suppliers uh, it's going to be 10 percent fewer vehicles being sold at dealerships so that's not really a strategy that appeals to dealers although they do make make more 
per vehicle as well at the lower volumes. Uh, it's, it's a lot to weigh against, but there are so many players in the auto industry. There's, it just seems like there's always going to be somebody to push and say, we can make more, we can sell more, you know, let's go for it. Let's get our market share. Let's get more revenue. And that's going to put pressure on everyone else. So it is challenging, but the prices are high. The, you know, the technology is expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you don't see, right, you don't see a lot of stripped-down cars being sold with just a basic radio and, uh, you know, and a heater, right? right. It's all, it's te- there's telematics, there's heated seats and uh, driver assist packages. Uh, I drove, you know, you, when you say six-figure cars, six-figure vehicles, there are a lot more of them than there used to be. Those are still pretty special. You know, they're yeah. Hummer EVs or they're Lucid Airs. <laughs> but um, I drove a Toyota Camry. That was forty thousand dollars. Stick, you know, as a test vehicle, a forty thousand dollar Camry, right? I mean, that is used to be the the basic vanilla, right. you know, car of middle America. Entry and, level, uh, entry level car, right? Yeah, um, well, mid size. You know, it's a family car. The, you know, you'd come into maybe a, a, a Corolla or Ford Focus uh-huh, size, you uh-huh. know, subcompact, and then you grow up. You know, when you have a family, but that was the classic family sedan. And you can still get a, a Camry for less than 30, but it just blew my mind. It's like a luxury car. And, mm-hmm. and you see this across the board. I mean, the GM and Ford and Stellantis have kind of gotten out of the sedan business for the most part. Uh, so it's, we don't have that comparison that we would have had in the past. Uh, but yeah, the, you know, it's, it goes back to scarcity and the cost of technology. So there aren't that many other sedans out there and, and if they're going to put in all That's that just luxury they technology, cost, yeah. they're going to charge you a luxury price. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us. Let's start today with Cheryl Ann in Ontario. Cheryl Ann, Good welcome to the show. Good morning, Detroiters. Hey, how are you? Good. So I was thinking as players go, you know, I grew up in a moto auto industry GM family. My dad uh, started on the line, and uh, there were incentives at the time. I wondered if your guest could elaborate. Uh, the incentive was uh, he started on the line, ended up past retirement as supervisor in the city of, uh, you know, of Oshawa, actually, mm-hmm. and uh, where I started out. But the incentives were if you came up with solutions on the line, you were given a cash payout on your check. Oh, really? Yeah, and he was able to go up through the echelons. So I was wondering, like, if you guys could comment on any incentives you're giving to your workers. Because I can't get any answers from people I know that are engineers now. That's an interesting question, uh, Cheryl Ann. Thanks uh, for the call. Jamie, what's what's the answer? You know, these are um, really common at the Japanese-owned plants. I mean, Toyota and Honda, it's a, for some line workers, it's a really important part of their compensation. You know, if they're clever enough to keep coming up with solutions, uh, I think, you know, at, at Toyota, I think they tend to, they've done it historically as like a percentage of the savings, probably with a cap because they can sometimes take the, they can save so much money that maybe somebody mm-hmm. wouldn't want to keep working and coming up with new ideas. But, uh, but no, they, um, they, you know, for them, they call it Kaizen, you know, continuous improvement. I believe that the Detroit automakers, have some sort of a reward program, but it's, it's not easy. And that's not the way uh, with the union relationship. That's not really the way it's designed. Right. Um, 
I think a lot of union folks would be like, it's not our job to design the factory or to design the car or the parts. The engineers are supposed to do that, and we're supposed to put them together. And yeah. and you have this division of labor that, that does make that different. I, I do think there is some flexibility, and, and they don't want to discourage people sharing ideas, but it's not as systematic as at some of the, the Japanese automakers. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, again, Cheryl Ann, really appreciate the call and and the question. Let's go next to Harry in Sterling Heights. Harry, Yeah, it's a great, welcome uh, it's to the a show. great uh, controversy on this side. I'm an old guy. I bought a 1970 Duster for twenty-three fifty-nine. <laughs> a point A to point B. They had the Maverick. They had the Nova. Just simple transportation. I don't need heated seats. I don't need these computers. I, I don't. I don't need all that. Just something to give me to work and back. You know, when I was a kid, people bought a station wagon. They'd laugh at you. And these SUVs now, they're glorified station wagons. People buy mm-hmm. pickup trucks with leather seats. <laughs> yeah, everything that they don't they don't know two by four from a four by four. I just don't get it anymore. Uh, Harry, I you know, I'm I'm pretty pretty close to your camp here. Uh I, you know, I although I will I will say I have become very accustomed to uh, many of the things that we have in cars now, and I like the gadgets, um, but but it is it is kind of a it is kind of a question um, about I guess the market, uh, Jamie, and um, you know what what is what people are demanding, but also what the industry is kind of deciding needs to just be standard as we get to. Uh, you know, a future that's going to look different than than it does now. A lot of the things that it seems like they're doing in cars right now are about, um, you know, electrification, uh, uh, you know, uh, driverless vehicles, automated uh, vehicles. More of the car is automated now than than it was before. So, so I guess wh- what's driving what is it? Is it consumer demand that that wants these? these luxuries, or is it that there's a future that we're coming up on that we'll, we'll actually need more of these things for? You know, it, it's all of those things. I mean, certainly when they load them up with the technology and, and the prices get high, they're still selling them all with very little discounts. So they're getting a lot of positive reinforcement from the American consumer. But mm-hmm. this outrage, you know, this frustration, you know, that Harry is feeling and that you're feeling, you know, I think there is some thought that this opens the door to, you know, to Chinese automakers or other, you know, low cost, less fancy, probably lower quality, you know, vehicles from other markets because it's, you know, it's too hard to make uh, vehicles here um, or even probably in Mexico that can be as profitable as the automakers want, you know, at a price like $20,000 anymore. It's, you know, it's very difficult. There's a very narrow window for that. Maybe, from one of these other places, it could be possible. We, we see, you know, VinFast trying to come in and with a really complicated pricing scheme on, you know, leasing the battery separate from the vehicle that you purchase. Um, you know, we've, there's some on the electric side in particular, of course, China has been all in on, or he has been really leaning in hard on electrics for several years and has a much more developed value chain from, you know, minerals, mineral processing, battery making. So BYD uh, and some other brands like that are really pushing more into Europe uh, because we still sort of have a trade war with China and Europe, not so much. Uh, doesn't as much have that, but 
you know, maybe if we didn't have a 25%, you know, tariff on the Chinese imports, mm-hmm. they can start offering some lower cost vehicles, more options, more variety for U.S. consumers. Of course, then we also have the advocates for, you know, self-driving cars, whether it's, you know, Elon Musk at Tesla. There's a lot of baggage with that. But, you know, General Motors and their cruise unit is making a lot of progress on robo-taxis. Their vision is to make it, you know, profoundly cheaper by the mile than car ownership is today. Yeah. So maybe that's the future. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue talking with Jamie Butters of Automotive News. We're going to catch up with him on what's going on with the UAW executive leadership. We also will continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. Mark and Redford will get to you next. If you want to join him, 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining. Our guest right now is Jamie Butters. He is executive editor of Automotive News and co-host of the Automotive News Daily Drive podcast. We're talking about GM's white-collar buyout, and in a minute we're going to talk a little about the executive leadership of the UAW. want to hear from you, the listeners, during the conversation as well. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Jamie, I, I do want to talk about this uh, this change at the UAW, and, and you know, I'm old enough to remember a time when something like this would have made huge news <laughs> all over, all over the, the the city. The you know the dailies and the the television stations would have been all over it. It hasn't made that much news. So so I want to talk a little about what's going on and and why it's significant. Yeah, it's. I mean, there's the profound change of a you know direct election of UAW leaders. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's really a new and totally different thing. And, you know, of course, we talk about in the you know, American democratic system, we don't really directly vote for the president. We vote for, you know, delegates to the, uh, uh, to the Congress, to the electoral college, you know, mm-hmm. but it's sort of maths out at least within the, you know, state by state. Um, you know, with this, it was, there was a slate, they were chosen by a group of leaders. There was, it was almost more like it was a one party system, right? So and those, that was all you could vote for. And now they have direct elections, but there was, you know, there's a runoff. There's been challenges. It's taken, it took weeks to even get, it took more than a week, like a week and a half to even just get started counting the contested ballots. And here we are, they're supposed to have a convention. They're supposed to have a bargaining convention on Monday and they don't know who the president is. And the guy who is the president, they don't know who the president is going to be. The gentleman who is currently the president is contesting the election, throwing up all sorts of complaints. I think it was just yesterday he had to swear in a new executive board member who he had said uh, was ineligible <laughs> just a few days ago. <laughs> uh, you know, there's so much chaos at the UAW. And, 
you know, I think for the U.S. auto industry, for the, the traditional U.S. auto, you know, the UAW auto industry, it's a real concern because for the first time in decades, they're negotiating against the Canadian Union. Now it's, it's called Unifor. It used to be the CAW. And uh, they're, I mean, they had their own little scandal. They have a new president, but they seem to know what they're doing and what they want to do. They're already floating some trial balloons about maybe profit sharing, which would indicate maybe a willingness to not take as big a raises. Um, you know, the UAW has, has had really great profit sharing in recent years, but, you know, the workers are upset. They're negotiating. The thing about these contracts uh, is that is they're so hard because the leadership has to negotiate a deal with the automakers. Right. How, you know, how much are they willing to spend on factories and people and all that? How much can they afford to spend? And then they've got to get their members to agree to that deal. And if there's a disconnect at either of those parts of the two-step, um, then things break down and maybe there's a strike. Uh, you know, so it's going to be really hard because, you know, workers have been, they've had the nice profit sharing, but hey, they had a role in making that happen. And inflation has been really high uh, for the last year and a half. So they want, uh, probably want to be made up for that. And they also want to see billions of dollars in EV investments to secure their future. And, um, it, and that's going to be hard for the automakers to stomach because they're worried about costs and a slowing economy and how they get across what, what Alex partners, you know, called the profit desert, you know, making EVs to why you try to build a profitable EV business. Sure. You know, it's just this long journey without making any money. You know, Tesla lost money for years and years before they became profitable. So um, <laughs> you, you also say that you feel like GM is trying to tame the UAW. Can you explain that a little? Yeah, I, I wasn't I wasn't really trying to be provocative. I was, and I think there, you know, I, I know there were other folks in town who had kind of the same idea. But the timing of this, right? I mean, you and I've been around for a long time. I've been covering autos in Detroit since 2000. And through that first decade, you know, before the bankruptcies, Mm-hmm. Plant closings were like standard operating procedures for the right. Detroit automakers, you know, sad as that was. Well, you know, before they would close a plant, they usually cut a bunch of white collar jobs. You know, you need to show that you're, everyone's, you're spreading the pain around, that everyone's making sacrifices. You know, sometimes they cut dividends and all that. The timing of these job cuts from an extremely profitable company, <laughs> um, mm. you know, may really, you know, they're, they're offering them now. They're going to they're going to have a you know probably 1.8 billion dollar profit hit in the short term that will mostly fall in the second quarter um, right before they do the handshake ceremonies with the UAW. So you know to the extent that they're I think they're playing a long game and trying to yeah. show the UAW hey we're having to cut costs I know things have been good but we're cutting costs and we need you to not be getting too many hands in the cookie jar and. Um, I don't know if it'll work, uh, but I do think there, there's the timing of it is, is ideal for getting that message across. It's going to take, yeah. it's going to knock their profits down in the second quarter, which will be the most recent numbers as they're doing the negotiations instead yeah. of these inflated COVID profits <laughs> that they've racked up for the last two and a half years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go back to Mark in Redford. Mark, what's on your mind? Good morning, Stephen. Hey. 
Interesting conversation with Jamie here um, in Automotive News. Um, we had a couple friends had buyouts, you know, with other conglomerates, other um, big trees. And I think part of the objective of doing that with GM, for example, is that they're trying to retool, um, you know, for the directors from the executive office in Washington for electric vehicles and such. But um, I don't know if it's feasible or is it defeatist to retool for building light rails and that sort of thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, great question, Mark. Uh, Jamie, go ahead. Yeah, there's, you know, the Washington, you know, President Biden's a big fan of trains. Uh, I think there are some, you know, as part of the infrastructure bill, there is some work on light rail. I, I wouldn't expect a wholesale transformation of the U.S. Uh, transportation network. I think we're more likely to get widespread robo-taxis before we're going to have, you know, a majority of commuters riding uh, light rail. Hmm. And, maybe, and it's, maybe it's my auto bias, but, I, but <laughs> it seems like something that's a lot closer. And, of course, because, because the funding and the creation, and, you know, is on the backs, is, you know, is with a privately owned company, General Motors, right. or, you, right. know, Way, you know, Google's Waymo, Tesla's Tesla. Um, but it's not the federal government or state government spending billions or trillions of dollars to create a new system and, and try to make it work. You know, hey, let the capitalists take the risk. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Jamie Butters, executive editor of Automotive News and co-host of the Automotive News Daily Drive podcast. Always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks for joining today. Glad to be here. When we come back, we're going to stay in Detroit, but we're going to pivot a little to talk about the district Detroit, where more people have weighed in with their opinions on what will happen with that project and what should happen with the big public subsidy that the project has asked for. Annalise Frank of Axios Detroit will join us next. We we'll also want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. Welcome back to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. Thanks for joining. If there's any single project that we keep coming back to these days on Detroit Today, it is District Detroit. It's not just because the project as it stands now would mean a lot of money, a lot of development flowing to parts of downtown. It's also because $800 million is being requested by the project developers to complete it. That's $800 million in tax breaks uh, that uh, they say is necessary to make the financing work. And of course, that leaves us with a pretty big question. What would this project's completion mean for the general public? Led by the Illich family's Olympia Development and Stephen Ross's related companies, 
These new plans include building residential and commercial complexes, hotels, and on-site parking, all right around Little Caesars Arena. It's estimated to cost $1.5 billion and projected to be done by 2028. Yesterday, there was a public meeting where Detroit City Council members had the opportunity to vote on whether the deal would move forward. To talk about what happened at that meeting and where we go from here, we've got Annalise Frank here with us. She's a Detroit reporter for Axios. She's been covering the ongoing story with District Detroit. Annalise Frank, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. So let's start with yesterday's meeting. Uh, What happened uh, when council took this up? Yes, yes. So um, last week, uh, council moved a bunch of items related to this District Detroit project out of committee to the full body for a vote on Tuesday or potential vote. Um, So this is um, city uh, commercial and and residential tax incentives. um, And then uh, uh, also a a larger state tax incentive. Uh, You mentioned the the, the total figure there earlier. Um, And then they're also looking at approving um, or not approving a a community benefits agreement that the developers um, had uh, uh, kind of negotiated with the city and with representatives of community over the last uh, couple months. Um, So this was before council yesterday and um, it was unclear whether they were going to vote or not. And um, we heard from a bunch of uh, residents and uh, stakeholders during public comment, uh, upwards of probably 100 people between in-person comment and uh, virtual comment, uh, you know, lasting several hours. Um, And ultimately, uh, city council decided not to vote uh, yesterday. They uh, delayed the vote for a week, so they could vote next Tuesday. That would be the soonest that this would happen. And there's, uh, so first of all, I, I mean, I listened to some of the meeting, there was a lot of folks down there and, and people were pretty worked up uh, about not just uh, the the developers who were involved here, but worked up about council and, and council members and, and their impression of how they were doing their jobs. But but let's talk about what it, what it means to delay this. There is something of a time uh, crunched if, if they want to get this project going by summer. Is that right? Uh, yes, yes. So um, some city officials and, and the developers have made it clear, um, you know, especially last week that they are rush- they are brushing up against some timelines here. Um, so they are looking, uh, they're looking for state approval for some of these tax incentives and they uh, are, are seeking that state approval in April. Um, so if they are able to get that, it's kind of, you know, this sort of cascading effect If that's delayed. It, it ultimately delays the construction start date, which they're, they're looking to start construction on the first building um, halfway through the year, basically. So, you know, they're saying that time is of the essence here. Um, and, you know, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're at city council yesterday. Um, uh, uh, city official Nicole Sherrod Freeman was was there to answer some questions and um, um, presumably kind of you know try to move this along. But but also you know council has been saying that they have a lot of questions, they have a lot of uh, uh, concerns they want addressed. So uh, they they are you know looking to to take their time with this uh, to an extent. I mean some council members also uh, mentioned that that they uh, agree uh, that this that that uh, you know 
time delays can can kill a deal or can hurt mm -hmm. a deal. You know, Scott Benson had said this. So there's definitely both of those perspectives. Yeah, I'm talking with Annalise Frank. She's a Detroit reporter for Axios. She's been covering the ongoing story around District Detroit, this proposal for a big development around and near Little Caesars Arena in downtown Detroit. Uh, we'd love to hear from you during the conversation as well. What do you make of the debate about the District Detroit? Uh, what do you make of the debate about the $800 million subsidy on the table for District Detroit? Do you think that's too high uh, if you do? What do you think uh, is a fairer offer for public support for that kind of project? Uh, and what would you like to see become of this plan? Uh, are you in favor of uh, the commercial and residential and other things that uh, that this neighborhood would include. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation. I, I want to talk about a, a specific idea that Council President Mary Sheffield brought up uh, yesterday, she wants the Illich family to agree to a 2% ticket surcharge uh, for the city um, for events in the arena district. Uh, talk about talk about that plan. This is something that uh, that has kind of been floating around the air for a while. We're one of the few cities, one of the few big cities that don't get direct financial benefit from you know people going to. Uh, to entertain themselves in, in venues in downtown Detroit. Uh, talk about Sheffield's proposal. Yeah, yeah. So this is a really interesting uh, piece of the uh, uh, talks that are going on and sort of the um, the discussion city council is having almost negotiations around this deal. Um, so council president Mary Sheffield um, has made a couple um, asks of the the developers here, and probably the most um, uh, interesting one, um, you know, that you mentioned is this two percent ticket surcharge on all entertainment venues within the um, elect organization's control. Um, and that money would go to the city's general fund. it's It's not exactly clear um, how that would look for a person who's buying a ticket. Um, if that would, you know, look like a little 2% charge or, or you know, if that would be more on the back end, it's, it seems unclear, you know, uh, from, from experts that I've talked to. But um, this is something that, as you said, she had, had wanted to see in the past and is, is something she's asking um, them to voluntarily uh, commit to. Um, so, so, you know, to have a, a mandated tax, there would be a, a law change that's required. Um, but, but what uh, Sheffield is saying here is that if, if they voluntarily commit to it, there needs to be no law change in order to institute this essentially voluntary payment to the city. Um, so so uh, she is asking uh, for that. Um, she's also asking a couple other things, and um, it's it's especially notable that the council president is asking these things because um, when you know a uh, half a year ago, more than that, when we were uh, looking at whether council was going to approve some tax abatements for um, Dan Gilbert's bedrock and the the, the mm -hmm. Hudson site project, um, she also made some asks after the community benefits process. Um, you know, like setting aside a, a certain number of, of retail spaces for small Detroit-based uh, disadvantaged businesses, 
Um, and uh, Bedrock ended up agreeing to those extra commitments and, and then city council approved uh, the deal. So of course not saying it's the same situation here, but there is a little bit of precedent for kind of making some of these asks. And we, you know, we obviously don't know um, what the developers are going to agree to. And, you know, I asked them for comment about this ticket surcharge and um, uh, they, they kind of declined to comment uh, on, on that. So it's sort of unclear, you know, what it'll look like moving forward. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number. Let's go to Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, welcome to the show. Good morning, Stephen. What troubles me the most about this is expanding office space when the knowledge people, uh, employees, want to work from home. We don't need no more office space. <laughs> uh, additionally, uh, even back in the 40s, we've been, um, the city had projects. Now, all the projects and cheap housing like at the YW and YM, those have been uh, decimated. And <laughs> whatever housing is going to be created, I can't afford yeah. Uh, you know, Bernadette, those are points that I think we heard uh, people echo at the, the, the hearing yesterday. And I think there are a lot of folks in, in Detroit thinking uh, along those, those same lines. Uh, Annalise, I wonder if you can talk a little about how they're addressing this question about, you know, office space. There is a there is a fair amount of office space that would be included with this. Uh, it's not all office space. You know, there's a lot of residential and, and some other stuff too. But this question about whether people are coming back to offices and, and especially offices in downtowns, uh, I think gives some folks, it gives some folks a, a, a bit of pause about this project. Yeah, yeah, we've definitely heard concerns from, you know, some residents and some council members about uh, proving out the need for this office space that's being built um, or that that would be built if this is approved. Um, so so basically what what the 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 city and you know even um mayor mike duggan has weighed in on this and and what the developers have have been saying in response to those um those concerns which you know we have seen a lot of people work from home and it means they're very legitimate um, um concerns office space down in downtowns is struggling um in a lot of ways um what they're saying is that there are a couple things one you know uh, bringing in a developer like Stephen Ross um, to uh, co-develop with with the Illich organization, um, uh, you know, Mayor Mike Duggan has said that's a game changer. That you know, the the Ross organization will be able to bring in national tenants. Um, that that you know, basically, he will have success. You know, is, is what the the mayor has said in the past. And um, there's also been um, some discussion from city officials. That you know, this is newer. This is newer office space. A lot of downtown Detroit's office space is quite old. Um, they can sort of provide different amenities. This sort of uh, quote unquote live, work, play um, environment. That this is how they're pitching it. You know, um, as being different and uh, a commodity that Detroit doesn't have. And you know, yeah. of course, there's there's concern that. There's a lot of concerns about about that narrative, um, um, but you know, there's also this idea that that they can offer something different that the city doesn't already have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's go next to Nadi in Detroit. Nadi, welcome to the show. 
it's Nada Delgamuni. Hello, and how is everybody? Good, how are you? Wonderful, wonderful. And you know, Detroit definitely is always going to be the welcoming city. And the diversity in Detroit is very critical and very important. And one of the plans we have, uh, me and a representative from 117 different ethnic communities who I don't have to go to, you know, Brazil or Ukraine or uh, France to bring them. They all live here. And those uh, cultural ambassadors have uh, the concept of building, um, not building, actually taking over an abandoned school in North Detroit. It's called hmm. a cracked school that uh-huh. they turn it to a tech uh, uh, center, but it didn't work because they don't have enough students, and they close it. And the city put it for sale, and we are willing to invest on that uh, school and turn it to ID. And what huh. ID means, international district. And in detail, that is international marketplace and cultural center, where we would like to see all the different ethnic communities from oh, wow. African American yeah. to, uh, you know, Latino. That's a really, uh, Nadi, that's a really, that's a really interesting proposal uh maybe that's something that could happen alongside uh something like uh, district detroit i really appreciate you calling though and letting us letting us know about that uh, uh, we've got a qu- uh, a question on twitter annalise that i want to have you address uh micheline maynard on twitter says one question is what if city council doesn't grant the subsidy for the district detroit will the area fall into ruin she says i'm thinking no it's near the dmc it's near Wayne State, it's not far from Orchestra Hall. As far as Detroit is concerned, it's already vibrant. What do the, the I mean, I, I don't know that there's too much chance that they won't approve this subsidy, but it's, it's an important question. If they didn't, what, what would happen? What do the developers say about, uh, about them not, maybe not doing this? Um, it's, you know, it's, it's unclear to me if there could potentially be some sort of pivot, but, but as far as, um, you know, public discourse has gone, um, they have said they need these, uh, tax incentives to make this financially feasible, that it would not be financially feasible without them. Um, and, and, you know, of course that's been a concern from, from some public commenters that, you know, these are a couple of, of billionaires and huge organizations doing this that, you know, some people believe that they should be able to do this without incentives, but, but, you know, in terms of, you know, what has been said and, and sort of the, the, the financing structure that, that, um, some, you know, city officials and the developers have spoken of, you know, it, it just really wouldn't be feasible from per them uh, without this. Uh, but yeah, as far as something, it, it's hard to know. You know, if there's some sort of negotiation that could occur for something different or small. I mean, it's 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 hard to. It's really hard to speculate here. It kind of feels kind of high pressure, all all or nothing. But um, I, you know, I really don't want to speculate too much on that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's go back to the phone, Cindy in the cast corridor. Cindy, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I. That surcharge on the tickets that used to be, I think, 10% on the food, the beer, the tickets, the parking. That's Joe Lewis, Lewis. yeah. yeah. And, and I want to, if they're going to have a surcharge, let them have a surcharge enough to reimburse all the money they take out of the tips for the schools 
in the libraries. But we need to get those tips out of schools and libraries statewide. That's ridiculous. Michigan is at the bottom. Yeah. Almost. They're way down at the bottom on education. And this, yeah. this is just, uh, and if we could build on the libraries, we could use, I think there's a limit to how many uh, acres or uh, plots or whatever you can use that, that uh, brownfield development. But there's no taxes on the construction material. There's no, they, they capture the withholding t- uh, taxes and the income tax. Yeah, uh, Cindy, I'm glad I, you, yeah, I'm glad you called and, and brought up those those two issues. Uh, Annalise, there were a lot of folks yesterday talking about their concerns about how these kinds of uh, these kinds of tax incentives for big development projects affect things like the library and and the schools. What 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 was council's uh, take on on all of that? I guess. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of differing opinions um, from, you know, of course, council has approved tax incentives in, in the past. So, yeah. so, you know, there's obviously some, some willingness there. Um, but, the, but there is, the, there is, you know, this concern that, that, you know, these, these tap, tax captures that the downtown development authority um, um, takes, you know, they, they take uh, uh, some property taxes uh, from, from downtown and, and, and use them uh, for, um, uh, these, these, you know, purposes that, that, you know, there's concerns that it benefits businesses. And, it, you know, if these, if this money didn't go by law, you know, to the DDA, that, that it could go to the city, to the schools. Um, and, um, so there has been some, some, uh, some concern about, about that. Um, it's, you know, it's something that would require a bigger change, um, than is, you know, possible this, this moment. Um, but, but it's definitely, a concern that that uh, council members have expressed as well. Yeah. Okay. So it is going to be next week when council takes this up again. Do we expect that uh, that they'll vote? I'm going to ask you to prognosticate a little. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it it really depends on what happens. Do you from from you know from my perspective, it really depends on what happens with uh, uh, Sheffield's asks. Um, yeah. You know, I, I really, you know, I, I really don't don't know um, if they have the the votes or not at this this point. Um, and I, I I really, you know, just just from my perspective, I feel like a lot is going to happen in in the next week, and it could yeah. it could really change things. Um, I, I, if I had to say, I think they will vote next week, but I am not. <laughs> I really just mm-hmm. I, I can't know. You know, yeah. I and, and no, there's uh, a lot. There's yeah. a lot up in the air. It seems right now, and a lot of negotiating still still to do. So, um, yeah, Annalise sure. Frank, uh, I really appreciate you being here uh, with us on Detroit Today. Thanks for helping us out. Yeah, thanks so much again. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about vaping and how it became a problem among teens in our country and how America successfully got a lot of people away from smoking cigarettes. Uh, Also, remember, if you like this show, enjoy listening to the program, get a lot out of it, please share it with your friends, your relatives, anyone you think would also enjoy it. You can find it on WDET.org or on our Detroit Today podcast, which you can download wherever you get podcasts. 
Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. Our student producer is Taylor Davis. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.